This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Tēnā koutou. My name is Nicola Daly. I'm from the University of Waikato in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and I'll be in conversation with my friend and colleague, Witi Ihimaira, one of our most celebrated New, Ze New Zealand authors. Tēnā koe, Witi. Good I, <laughs> I see us as collaborators in terms of increasing awareness of Te Ao Māori and Te Reo Māori, but your career has much deeper roots than mine. You were the first Māori novelist in New Zealand when you published Tangi in 1972, and this year you're celebrating its 50th anniversary as a, as a writer with a newly rewritten anniversary edition. It's, it's I'm older than I look. <laughs> <laughs> It's customary for us from Aotearoa New Zealand to begin with what we call a mihi or a greeting. So I'm going to ask you, Witi, to do this on our behalf. Okay. Well, in Māoridom, we say that you have to stand to talk. And uh, we also uh, say that um, if you don't stand, or if you stand, uh, then you will live. If you lie down, uh, you will die. So if you will permit me uh, to stand, and then I won't die. <laughs> My new friends from the Congress, thank you for coming. I have been so honoured and humbled to be here and I'm so thankful to Sarah uh, for the invitation to come from Aotearoa, New Zealand uh, with Nicola. Nā reira, tēnā well, you know, Nicola, it was really interesting because uh, I wrote this book, the book um, that uh, Whale Rider was based on in 1986. And um, then the movie came out in 2002. And uh, this time around, you know, I, I'd forgotten that it was so much about the magic child mm. and that it was also about uh, life, death and destiny. Mm. And I had also forgotten that uh, when I wrote it, um, Māoridom was changing from a, a traditional culture into one that had to be super fast and, and super active in attempting to become um, and achieve equity, excellence and um, a judicial uh, um, um, justice mm. uh, for Māori in New mm. Zealand. So, mm. Mm. But I also thought, seeing the old man up there and seeing um, how he felt about um, his granddaughter, I'd forgotten that uh, my own grandfather was like that. Mm. And uh, my father had been the eldest son of an 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 eldest son, going all the way back to the beginning of time. And then when I had a, a daughter, uh, Jessica Kitty, um, his response was, well, you try again, the next time you will have a son. And of course I did try again and I had 
another daughter, <laughs> Olivia Atta. So um, the film and mm. the, um, the um, well, the book in particular, was my attempt to to have him love me. Mm. The book was was to was to show him that um, times were changing, that it was uh, important now for Maori to go ahead um, with more leaders, and that gender should not matter. Mm. 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 Yes, I was. Um, thinking a lot about um, uh, Maya's um, talk earlier today um, um, and about, about the boxes of gender and, and how this um, film kind of challenges those boxes. Um, and I was just, as the film started, I said to, uh, leant over to Witty and said, I feel like I'm going home. It feels like home when I watch that movie. Um, you've done the most amazing thing. You've given us all this huge taonga. And as we've been meeting people prior to this evening, Several people have said to us, well, I watch that movie repeatedly, quite often. It's a, it's a touchstone for me. It's, it's something that I go back to. And um, yes, I don't know, did you realise? One of the ironies, Nicola, was that, um, although you and I come from New Zealand, I actually wrote it in New York. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like one of those books that sometimes we write um, when we are overseas and we are, um, I guess... Um, it, it, it's almost like a, a book that was written um, um, as if I had been banished. Mm. And so a book out of banishment. And I think that because, uh, um, because I was so far away, that gave me enough distance uh, to be able um, to, to write the book. Mm. I, I, I think with as much honesty, but also with as much emotion mm. as you can, can, can obtain when you are living um, in alienation like that. Mm. Why were you in New York, Whitty? I was like uh, the father of, of Pai in that movie and uh, had decided that one of the ways in which I could uh, obtain my, my, my uh, grandfather's devotion was to be as international as I possibly um, could be. So I became a diplomat for the New Zealand service and I was a diplomat for 16 years serving in New York and then also in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. And I had started my, uh, my, uh, my job as a diplomat in, um, uh, in Australia, at Canberra. Um, I don't think that he loved me anymore because I had proven that um, Māori could do anything and go anywhere. But I think that... Uh, and, and he never ever said anything to me about, um, you know, about having uh, broken through that glass ceiling of what we can achieve. But anyway, I didn't do it for him. I did it for myself, and I did it to show that it doesn't matter who you are, um, that you can do anything, and you can achieve uh, what, you, what your dreams, uh, what you aspire to. Hmm. And all my life, I've often wondered, um, is my life, dic um, according to the dictates of fiction, quite by accident, or am I really writing my life to be that fiction? And I think that that's what I'm doing, the latter rather than the former. Writing your life to be that fiction. Yes. yes. <laughs> was there a specific um, happening that led to the writing of the book? Because I'm uh, a Māori writer and an and, and Indigenous um, writer, um, I've always felt that the only way that I can authentic authenticate my work uh, is to make sure that it has a Māori or Indigenous ur text or original text. 
And so I use the urtext, the original text, to connect my work to the pitor or umbilical um, of the mythical text. If I don't do that, I might borrow or, or I might uh, put my umbilical um, into an, an, uh, a European story or a European source. So I try to make sure that my umbilical is firmly implanted in the uterus of my storytelling, not anybody else's. And in the case of the whale rider, that uterus or womb is the ocean uh, that we actually share with Santa Barbara, the Pacific. Well, you on the northeast coast here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is way down there <laughs> in the southwest. And then, of course, right in the middle is the Polynesian Triangle uh, with Hawaii at the apex. So this particular um, story, the whale rider, is a very Polynesian story. It's set within the, the, the Polynesian Triangle uh, between Hawaii, uh, Easter Island and uh, Aotearoa. And that, in fact, is, maps out the geography, the ecolo ecological geography of all of my work. Mm. It all exists within this triangle. Right. A good shape to write on. <laughs> um, as we've been preparing for this conversation, I've learned a lot from you, Witty, and um, a lot of people here won't know that the Māori of Aotearoa are actually the youngest of all the populations that came out of Tanzania, yes. Africa, from an original Eve. Over time, those original populations <laughs> spread throughout the continent into Europe, across to North America and westward into Asia. And genetic scientists have traced the ancestors of Māori as arriving in Taiwan and populating the South, South Pacific, arriving eventually in our islands in Aotearoa. Yeah, it's pretty amazing for me to even think about all of our, our migrations around the world and, and where we fit within those sequences. And, and certainly, to me, it's, it, it's always a, a proud moment to know that I'm uh, among the youngest of the world's populations. And therefore, I can make as many mistakes as I can as the youngest <laughs> child. And you are all my elders here. You know, you're the eldest. You come from the elder civilizations. Whereas, whereas mine is like that little boy who's being cradled by his father over there. The Portiki, the Portiki. Um, so there was this original Eve, and she was in Tanzania. And over time, uh, those original populations spread throughout the continent into Europe, across to North America, or westward into Asia. I'm sure you know all of this. And genetic scientists uh, did trace uh, us from coming here. They came to New Zealand on large seagoing canoes. So I was really pleased, uh, you know, at lunch today when we met um, an indigenous uh, voyager who was telling me about um, the waka that you have here yeah, um, in the Salish people. Is that right? Yeah. The tomo. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yes. And you know, I have to say that I'm grateful that I, I, I how grateful I am to Sarah uh, Pankania World for organising the lunch with, with you, Mia, um, because one of the most profound things is to be able to meet people everywhere you go, but in particular, Mia brought along her family, and that was herself, her mother, um, her son, and her grandson. Mm. So I was able to meet four generations in, in, at one lunchtime, and it, it's that kind of vertical, vertical um, understanding that you get, uh, which fills you with joy. And I've had so much of that vertical understanding here at this mm. conference. Mm -hmm. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about PyCare? Yes, so in the movie, um, what happens when you, you make a movie is that you really only have around about 90 to 100 minutes. Originating story of PyCare 
uh, is not in the movie. So therefore, although at the conference we have been looking at the ecologies of childhood and uh, also um, um, the place of nature and the place of the environment in it, uh, that kind of story of the, um, the womb of uh, the Polynesian people isn't on the film, but it's certainly uh, in the book. And so we have a very, very strong relationship um, with cetaceans. And when the whales returned on their annual migrations to their feeding grounds in the Antarctica from the original homeland of the Māori, which was in French Polynesia in ta near Tahiti, what our waka used to do was to embed themselves in the pods of whales. They would embed themselves in the pods of whales and follow the whale pathways in the ocean uh, to our country. And when you think about it, isn't that astounding that we would use whales uh, to be able to find Aotearoa? Because those whales were on their uh, migration down to Antarctica. Uh, they would go past the eastern seaboard of uh, New Zealand mm. on their way there. Mm. And so the canoes would then leave the whale pods and uh, then um, head uh, towards land. Mm -hmm. And among the voyager stories is one of my own tribal origin about a young warrior prince. And so this is not in the movie, but it's the context of the movie. And his name was Paikea. He lived in French Polynesia in the region of Tahiti. And he actually rode the whale to escape from a half-brother who wanted to kill him and take the throne. So it is um, the prince, the prince story here is, is coming um, into play. Um, and it's about the, the half-blood prince against the full-blood prince. Mm. Um, so he, his brother wanted to kill him and take the throne, but his pet whale rescued him, and then his half-brother pursued him in a rather epic sea battle for 10 or so days southward to New Zealand, where Paikea finally escaped by coming to shore at a place called Whangara. And that place, Whangara, is what you see uh, yeah. now um, on the screen. So the movie was actually filmed in Whangara and the, the whare nui, the, the building with the uh, whale rider on top is a real whare nui, isn't it? Yes, ever since I began filmmaking I've realised that uh, a sense of place, especially of, of a real place, is so important in establishing um, the world of the film. And I was just so amazed, you know, I used to love going out to Whangara. It's around about um, five hours bike ride get out there. When I was a young boy, I would go out there just to look at that uh, at meeting Pike house. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And then I'd ask my ancestor on his whale on the top there, how did you breathe when the whale sounded? You know, I mean, I was such an imaginative, imaginative child and I wanted, you know, I wanted, I wanted it to be real and I wanted to make sure that it was real and I, I wanted to believe so much that this could happen and I knew it could happen. So therefore I used to go to the uh, the local swimming pool, dive in, and then um, I, I would have a watch on my, and this is when I was about 12, and, and I have a watch on my hand and I'd start uh, looking at the, at the watch and think, one minute, two minutes, <laughs> three minutes, and then I'd be forced to come up and I'd think, not good enough, Woody. <laughs> <laughs> so you really were always fascinated by this story, weren't you? I've always been fascinated by story and what's been amazing uh, about this conference is the synchronicity of all of our stories. There have been stories of recovery, for instance. You know, I, I was in um, 
a session uh, this afternoon and was astounded to, to learn of, uh, young, of women scientists who lived in the 18th century who were writing books. I thought that was, that to me was the recovery of, of a history um, of women um, against all odds because in, that must have been a very patriarchal uh, time for women to be even thinking of writing. Um, and it's, it's been fantastic for me to even talk to other people about, uh, you know, about their work. It's just been so amazing. So when I was young, um, around about uh, 10, um, and I was a farmer's son. So we lived on a farm uh, with no electric lights and with no television. And when the sun went down, uh, we went to bed. When the sun came up, we, we woke up and, and went to work. And uh, my father, Tom, was a farmer and sheep shearer. And I started to write on the walls of my bedroom <laughs> with a pencil. And I would write um, the stories that I heard down at the marae, including this one of, of the whale rider. Um, or I would write about Tāwhaki, who is the only man in our entire human history to make a journey into space way before NASA did. <laughs> he didn't go on a spaceship, though. He climbed on a kumara vine. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, these are sweet potato vines. So these were the stories that, you know, I grew up with. And they were always embedded with this idea that um, we came from, um, uh, uh, from um, a culture um, that valued story. In fact, I never, you know, I used to think that uh, we were not storytellers, but we were um, story singers or story dancers, and that our way of evoking uh, stories was much more physical uh, than uh, European uh, storytelling. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I think you told me that, um, that your mother, when you left, your mother painted her, your bedroom walls yellow, sort of painted over all the stories you'd written on the walls. Is that right? Yes. When I left school to go to um, college and then uh, university, because my, my grandmother whom I loved very much, and uh, Jorge talked about his grandmother uh, and grandmothers today while well, I was brought up by all of these uh, grandmothers, and they still sit in my skull, and they still whisper in my ear about what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. And when I was in uh, Washington, D.C., um, and I was coming home, I decided to go and see a psychic, um, and the psychic, uh, after having sat me down for, uh, at least it seemed like 25 or 30 minutes, told me that he couldn't do anything for me uh, because there was a woman, she was standing in a shaft of blinding light and she would not let him pass. And as soon as he said that, I knew it was Teria, my <coughs> grandmother, and that she would always guard me, safeguard me, until the end of my time here on Earth. Mm, wonderful to have such a guardian. Now you've already mentioned that um, you were living in New York when you when you started writing um, Pike uh, this story. Is yes. it right that you saw a whale in the Hudson River and then you started writing the yes. novel? Well, I was always trying to transcend my limitations as a, as a person, you know, um, because I was such a bad student. Um, <laughs> it took me nine years to get a very bad Bachelor of Arts degree. My father, Tom, sent me a telegram which said, congratulations, stop, about time, stop. <laughs> Even the tortoise didn't take this long, stop. <laughs> However, I managed to fool my government into sending me to America. 
And I was living on the 33rd floor of an apartment building on West 67th Street. And it was a very, very sunny day. And all of a sudden, these helicopters came whizzing down <laughs> the Hudson River. And when I looked out, a whale was spouting in the distance. So how did you interpret that? Well, you know, it made me cry. I thought it had come from the Pacific to say hello. And, you know, the Hudson River at that time um, was really black and dirty. What whale would ever want to swim in, into it? And then the most important thing, my two daughters, Jessica and Olivia, came on vacation. Um, and we went to a number of movies, and Jessica, who was 11, complained to me, why was it that it was always the boys who got to ride the spaceships and save the galaxy? Why not the girls as well? So I put the whale and my daughter's uh, arrival together and decided to write a contemporary story of a modern-day Paikea, except that she was now a girl. When my Paikea rides the whale, she becomes Moby Chick. <laughs> and all of my friends in New York, all of my, my Brooklyn friends especially, they all reckon that um, she's a New York gal, a Brooklyn gal. <laughs> so she does indeed save the universe. And in her case, she becomes the leader of her tribe uh, when only boys uh, were allowed to do that. And what is wonderful to me is that I was able to start a new origin story. I was able to start a new origin story for a traditional patriarchal uh, tribal um, um, nation, um, just as Paikia had, the original um, ancestor, a new whale rider for a new generation. Mm. And when the book was first published, what was the response you got? For, for, uh, uh, I'm thinking first of all about um, tribes around Aotearoa. Um, some tribes um, have only male leaders, some tribes have female and male leaders. What kind of responses? Yeah. Did you get any responses? Well, maybe I, you know, I can say that, um, first of all, I was a Māori writer, and so um, the, um, the Pākehā, or European, um, response, um, there was none. Um, I think I was still invisible in those days. And then, of course, um, because I was breaking some taboos, or tapu, we call it, um, in my own culture, you know, the girl is, is, is uh, fighting with a, a morako. Um, she is someone who is learning all of these chants that were normally uh, the realm of tohunga, or of priests. Um, she then decides uh, you know, to, to take that destiny into her own hands. And there was actually quite a lot of disapproval uh, you know, from, um, um, uh, from uh, some uh, tribal elders about the whole idea of a woman at the end, as you, you saw, um, helming or captaining um, the waka. But I've always, you know, I've always tried to, uh, to push boundaries and to make the world a better place and to uh, make sure that it is inclusive. And I think that that's why I'm, you know, I was uh, put here on this earth to, to try to create new stories for new generations, mm. for the uh, for the next um, generation. So, mm. also there was no internet, um, no social networks, no Google, no Facebook, no Snapchat, no Instagram that would have spread the word. Mm. So I'm very proud of a, of, a, of a product, you know, that has made its way, without any help, without any support. Mm. into the world, and I thank you for coming. Mm. As well as the um, Ur text or the ancient text that you mentioned, 
we also have to be aware of the context or the history of the world surrounding Māori at the time, don't we, that, that despite yes. Māori chiefs signing a treaty with the new settler government and the um, British Crown in 1840, it was soon broken. Well, did you know that um, there was one, one a moment in New Zealand's history when there were more British soldiers um, in New Zealand than any other place um, in the world, even more than were in Canada, and so uh, there was a, a huge upbringing, uprising, Māori uprising, uh, in the 1840s to 1880s. And uh, Pākehā called it the New Zealand Wars and the Māori Wars, but Māori called them the Pākehā Wars. So they were actually a, a, a series of wars um, that by attrition, by death and disease, our population went from 100% to 10%. Uh, with wholesale uh, land confiscation. And by the time I was born in the 1940s, we were just beginning to achieve the turnaround in our fortunes. And as you know, in New Zealand, there was a time when, um, when anthropologists would say, well, there is nothing more that we can do for Māori except to smooth the pillow um, for their coffin. So it was that drastic for us, just as it has been as drastic uh, for some of the indigenous people um, in this country. Um, However, around about the 1970s, we saw times of increasing sovereignty. And so I'm, I'm part of that because mm. my first novel was, was, uh, came out in, uh, in 1972. And that is the one that I'm celebrating 50th, my, my 50th year as a novelist. It's incredible to think that there had not been any uh, novels beforehand, but that is the truth. So it's a marvellous story of resilience and determination. And then there was me writing away. But here's the thing, Mia. Although the land, Māori language and culture had been taken away, it still remained in the memory. It still remained in the memory, such as in all of those urtexts, those pūrākos, those mythologies. And I was so moved to hear you talk about the villages uh, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that you still can name uh, in all of your oral traditions, um, the geographies uh, that you were able to continue uh, to tell um, to this world. So while other Māori took up direct political action to ensure stronger political representation, I took it upon myself to write those memories down um, as stories. I took it upon myself to be, it was the best offer to everyone about how I personally could assist retain possession of our primary asset. Because when everything else is gone, all you have is memory and story. Mm -hmm. Yes. What fascinated me about The Whale Rider is that it doesn't go into grievance mode, but it, it moves forward into the future by showing how a new generation can reclaim cultural inheritance, including the old way of connecting the human world with the natural world. Well, you're Pākehā mm. and I'm Māori, mm. so I managed to create um, an audience um, among... Um, the majority of Pākehā in New Zealand, because they began to believe around about the 1980s and 90s um, that the future of Aotearoa New Zealand was in acknowledging two knowledges. At the time, they only acknowledged one knowledge, and that was the knowledge that came from the Westminster um, tradition. And I've mentioned before that Māori have that saying, tama tu, tama ora, tama noho, tama mate. If you stand, you live. If you lie down, you die. And we've always taken the long view. We've always taken the long view on survival. 
and we always say that although it's small, even the caterpillar, by gnawing patiently away, can bring down the white pine tree. <laughs> You've told us a little bit about the origin of writing The Whale Rider and where you were. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about perhaps how long it took and the structure of it? Well, um, the book actually took me three weeks to write the first draft. Three weeks. And that is because I was engaged. I was totally engaged. I would go to work in the morning, I would write in, in lunchtime, I would go back to work in the afternoon, I would go back to the apartment in the evening. Um, the Big Apple, poor Big Apple had to do without me for, for those three weeks when I just <laughs> wrote, wrote, wrote and wrote. I structured the book according to what I call the indigenous storytelling framework, and that is summer, autumn, uh, winter, um, and the book ends in the radiance of spring or in renewal. So all of my books are like that. Um, they end always on this uplift, on renewal. I wouldn't say it's optimism or hope, but certainly um, on renewal itself. And I decided I would make it as much of a Pacific object as possible by setting parts of it in Tierra del Fuego, in Chile, Easter Island, Rayatea in French Polynesia, Papua New Guinea and Australia. So it's a very, very Pacific wide book because I wanted it to be a Pacific story, not just, mm. not just a Māori story. And that, I think, is why it appealed to the filmmakers. And the environmental message within the, carried within this pūraka, this story, this Pakiwaitarapip, maybe, um, yeah. is, was very fashion-forward for the time. Do you like to comment on that? Well, you know, this is really interesting, because when I got to, um, uh, um, uh, to New York, uh, I became very aware of the nuclear danger facing the globe because on the day that I arrived, the Chernobyl disaster happened and a cloud of radioactive dust was rumoured to be coming down the Atlantic seaboard. And at the same time, nations were meeting on a nuclear-free Pacific and the need to ban further whaling slaughter. And, of course, my New York girlfriends, once they knew the main character was a girl, would keep on encouraging me to give her more feminist personality and sass and make her a street spot as they were. So I kept grabbing incidents out of the air and putting them in the book, like the empty chair that Kahu faces uh, when she gives her speech at the school prize giving. I still think that that's one of the most heartbreaking moments um, mm. that could happen in the movie. Mm. And it happened to me uh, when I was going to school and um, my, my grandfather was supposed to come, but he didn't arrive. And so I grabbed that in incident um, from my own life mm. and, and uh, put it there. Um, the one great wrestle that I had with myself as an artist was that in the original draft, I had written a chapter in which Nanny Flowers dies. And so Kahu has to face her grandfather's ongoing paranoia without her grandmother's support. And that would have been a different story and a, um, a less hopeful um, situation for her. Like we were talking uh, within our Congress about um, the, the need for us to maintain hope for children. But there is also the reality for children that um, the world is not always that hopeful um, all the time. Well, I brought Nanny Flowers back in as I couldn't bear the thought of Kahu duking it out alone with her grandfather. <laughs> and much later, I changed the ending. I mean, this book is now... The book has gone through five different versions. 
And um, on the third version, I decided to change um, the ending because uh, in the novel, um, I had given the last words of blessing to Kahu to the old male whale. And the old male whale is the one who says, child, fulfill your destiny. But I altered the character who says those words to the old female whale, an elder woman authenticating the young girl rather than the male doing that. After all, patriarchy has always been one of my targets. He and I are old enemies. <laughs> and so this change supported the matriarchy. To continue, the book became progressively successful in New Zealand by word of mouth. But it wasn't until the movie was released in 2002, 16 years later, that the book went international and it transcended its location, its indigeneity and specific, its specificity to become uh, universal. And today the book has become the most translated in New Zealand's history. And uh, next year it will be translated into the Amharic Semitic language for an Ethiopian edition. Wow. Pretty good for a book, <laughs> isn't that? Yeah. Well, speaking of international, um, you've, oh, yeah, you've, my, you've my, just uh, come people here forget, from... People forget to joke about me being the, oh, prince, yes. about being the prince of Wales. <laughs> <laughs> what do your daughters say about that? <laughs> they think you might, might almost be as famous as, as the Prince of Wales. You've actually come to this conference from being the guest of the Presence Autocone Indigenous Film Festival in Montreal, haven't you? Well, following um, The Whale Rider, three more of my books were optioned to be made into films. Um, Nights in the Gardens of Spain, Mahana and White Lies, and so they were shown there mm. in, in uh, Montreal. And two other books have been optioned for future development, Sleep Standing and The Uncle Story. So I'm afraid you haven't seen The Last of Me yet. <laughs> but I it's don't. always very hard, as most of you who are filmmakers know, to get um, work, um, films to the gate. Whale Rider took 12 years, and one of the reasons why it took 12 years was that a movie called Once for Warriors came out, just as we were about to make Whale Rider. And we realised that we couldn't really make Whale Rider in the wake of this amazingly visceral, strong and violent movie about Māori. And so we waited for 10 years and then put it into production. I have to tell you that it was only $4 million New Zealand to make this movie, which is around about $2 million um, American. And at the same time, there was a, a bigger movie project happening in New Zealand called Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so Lord of the Rings was getting all of this money from, from uh, government and people, uh, people, the tourist department uh, uh, branded um, New Zealand Middle Earth and I kept on going around saying, no, this is not Middle Earth, this is Māori Earth. <laughs> that still didn't get us any more money. <laughs> coming back to uh, Whale Rider, what, what, well, no, coming back to all of your writing and, and your career as a writer, what does this tell us, the readers and viewers, about you, Witty? What does your career tell us about you? Well, I'm in the odd position in the film world of, of, of having, uh, by next year, six of my, my, my work um, as the original <coughs> story writer, as the original novelist. And then um, I've always believed that you should never only stand at the back of your work as the writer, you should also get in front as... Um, um, as, the, as a producer. So I learnt uh, uh, production skills. Um, I learnt um, um, 
how one uh, sets up um, um, uh, film productions, um, how you raise money, how you get involved with distribution agreements. Um, and so it's been important for me uh, mm. to make sure that not only am I uh, talking the talk, but walking the talk. Uh, so I'm tenacious and I have stamina and I'm also very, very opportunistic. And I take every opportunity uh, to, to, you know, to do um, work. This year, in my 50th year, I have five books coming out and I've just had a play um, produced in uh, New Zealand, uh, which we're hoping to bring here to the United States in two years' time. And I have another play which um, um, a group of Māori, a kapahaka team, want to make into a, a performance um, show for France. I don't do that by myself. I just get into these collaborations because younger people seem to want to be involved in them. Mm -hmm. And I really am grateful to a younger generation of filmmakers, and really am grateful for a number of, you know, a number of younger um, Maori um, uh, people, uh, young younger people. Nikki mm -hmm. um, Caro, she was the young, young film director. Mm -hmm. She had not made a film, uh, feature film before she made Whale Rider. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Barry Barclay, Lee Tamahori was another one. Mm -hmm. After having made Once for Warriors, this is her second. Maori, Maori film. Mm. So, yes, it's been a profound journey and one that I wouldn't have been able to do without collaborations, which is why I've been so interested in this conference because I keep on seeing people that I'd like to work with. Well, I think we're coming to the end of our time for, uh, for, our, for our conversation, Witty. Um, um, I'm going to pass over to Emily Zinn now, who will um, take some questions from the floor. Um, I wanted to ask you in terms of um, when, a, when a book goes into a film, what you talked a little bit about the fact that you had a kind of a story and a context um, that, that was not in, in the film. What do you think your, um, the film gives us that your book didn't give you? What kind of sort of, um, you know, positive parts, because often people say, oh, the book was so much better than the film. And I was just wondering from the film point of view, um, what do you think was brought out by the film that maybe wasn't in the book? I think that the, the film is an absolutely wonderful cinematic experience. Uh, the book is, is not a cinematic experience. The book is more um, informational and it is very heavily indigenous. Uh, when I first saw it, I have to say that I was really wanting to have more whales in it. I wanted to have more um, dancing in it. I wanted to have more story singing um, in it. Um, but the interesting thing about the, about the film, in, in my opinion, is that it, it is so minimalist that anybody can walk into it and you can be that daughter, you can be that, um, uh, that grandmother, you can be that <laughs> grandfather. Um, so it was that un minimalist um, aspect about the, the film that I think probably attributed to its success. And I wonder, what your thoughts are about the impact that your book and film have had on these discussions on Maori culture, on how much we can change, how much we should keep, and how this has developed over these past 30 plus years since the book was published. So when I was um, of that age in, in the 1970s, when we were all really fighting for sovereignty, what we call tino rangatiratanga, 
Um, there were so many gatekeepers, not only in the Pākehā world, but in the Māori world as well. Um, but the demographics, Māori were beginning to go into cities and become urbanised and educated. And then with an educated majority, because we were such a young population, um, what then happened to our, our traditional ways of looking was that we gradually, gradually began to make out of those traditional ways modern art. We began to make out of that traditional singing modern singing. So the, um, the transition from a traditional into a contemporary force um, in terms of culture in, in New Zealand has now come to the point where you can't get away from uh, Māori art Nobody calls it traditional anymore because although it, it has come from a traditional source, it is no longer traditional or it has taken um, the tr tradition into new forms. Um, with um, uh, literature, for instance, I always used to say that the novel was an alien construct uh, for Māori and for indigenous people. Um, I al al always used to say that English um, was a... Um, a profane language rather than um, Māori or indigenous um, uh, language. And now there were more um, Pākehā as well as, uh, you know, joining us um, Māori in learning um, the Māori reo. So it's, it's kind of like now there are forces going that way and there are forces coming this way and they are making of New Zealand an incredibly rich society uh, where hopefully in the future, we're going to be a new kind of people. We're going to be a new kind of civilization. We're certainly going to be a new kind of culture. Uh, in New Zealand, for instance, the Governor-General, in terms of representation, the Governor-General is a Māori and a woman. Um, in our cabinet, our New Zealand cabinet, I think there are uh, 15 uh, Māori or other uh, people of colour who are in the cabinet. Um, there are nine mayors of, of uh, New Zealand who are Māori. Uh, so we are, we are getting this hugely interesting, um, um, passionate uh, country of people who are involved in talking to each other about the future. And I think that that's, uh, uh, that's uh, uh, doing away with that tradition, enabling women uh, to have, uh, you know, to have some... Uh, governance, some representation in New Zealand, not just the presence. And, uh, and that's why I think that in New Zealand we should be proud of, of, of what we're doing there yes. in terms of um, equality, equity and justice. Always more work to do, but yes, a lot of, a lot of progress do, been yes. made. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Uh, I, I've been interested in how children are part of the writing process, even in some ways that we, we, don't, we don't notice, we overlook. Uh, and so I was very interested in how you, you spoke about your daughters. And, and so I wanted to ask, to what extent uh, this book is uh, directed at your daughters and, and written, written for your daughters? And whether, I, I'm also wondering, uh, speculating about whether that might be why it, it, it hits so powerfully uh, with, with audiences, as does the film. So I have a granddaughter now, her name is Aria, and she is story has become something that everybody's writing um, in New Zealand. She goes to school, and there is one day of every school week in which all of the children write story. Uh, New Zealand, too, has decided that there will be a day of history. Um, 
uh, which um, is a holiday in which people reflect on um, uh, the problems that we've had in the past. It's, it's, and then also try to, um, uh, try to just keep on talking about them. We have another um, holiday which has just been um, announced and also now um, is, uh, is, has really been, become popular, which we call Matariki. And Matariki has now signals that New Zealand has decided that its new year will not be in December, January, but it will be in June, July. So um, people are beginning to create stories to, of today uh, for this new generation of the future. And those stories, one of these days I'm going to have to, to, to sit back and allow that mod modern generation uh, to write those stories and hopefully um, there will be new Paikeas from a new generation mm. continuing to perhaps ride spaceships into space. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for your um, attendance, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.